Well, I appreciate these brothers being with us here this morning. Um, many of you know Clacy, uh, who is from our church here. Uh, he's gone a lot uh, singing uh, across the country, and he's been a part of the Gospel Harmony Boys probably for half a century, 50 years. Can you believe that? Uh, but he's been doing it for a long time. But what you might not know is that um, our church, for some of you that are newer especially, has gone through an expansion and building process uh, for the past 20 years, really. And uh, our Vision Task Force, which is a smaller group of people who served and guided that whole process, were integral to all of our expansion and improvements and renovations and all that the Lord's done here on the Hill. So the many things that we enjoy now and take for granted are as a result of the faithfulness of God's people and then the leadership of uh, some of the folks on that team. And Clacy served faithfully through that whole process uh, to help us get to where we needed to be uh, behind the scenes, a lot of people not knowing what was going on, but yet he, along with the remainder of that team, did a wonderful job for us. So we're thankful for their investment uh, that has been a blessing to us. I'm also thankful for uh, Brenda, Clacy's wife, who serves very quietly uh, in the multimedia ministry, uh, but is very faithful. And uh, I said earlier that uh, there are some people in churches that just know how to be friends. They know how to be supportive and encouraging along the way. And uh, Clacy and Brenda are, are those type of people. And from a personal standpoint, I'm very grateful uh, for their friendship and for their faithfulness and investment and our church family, and uh, appreciate and love both of you, and glad to have you here with us today, as always. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to consider the first seven verses in this chapter, and a message entitled, All of Us Are Accountable to God. All of us are accountable to God. Now, we know that accountability in life is important, even though we don't like it, We all know that we need it. We need accountability in our spiritual lives. We need it in our personal lives. We need it vocationally and pretty much every other area. To be accountable simply means that we take responsibility for decisions that we make and we own the actions that we take in life. Now, in our sinful natures, uh, we tend to be filled with pride We reject uh, the idea and resist the idea of accountability. We crave independence from God to our own detriment. But accountability to God and to one another is foundational. And it's even foundational to Christian freedom. Because after all, Christian freedom is not the ability to do what we want to do. It's the ability to do what God wants us to do and what is right in his sight. So if we are living and praying and desiring the will of God in our lives, then his will will become our desire. The two will line up. And by the grace of God, we will honor him with how we live. I would say that accountability to God is central to life as a disciple. Uh, Bill Hall wrote in his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, to believe you can make disciples or develop true maturity in others without some form of accountability. It's like believing that you can raise children without discipline, run a company without rules, or lead an army without authority. Accountability is, to the Great Commission, what tracks are to a train. We last encountered Jesus having been invited to the home of a Pharisee. 
He was invited there for a meal. And in the midst of that, uh, he taught and addressed uh, on the issue of legalism, which is an attempt to either secure or maintain righteousness in God's sight by good works or by the keeping of the law. It has more to do with outward actions than it does with the heart. I would say to you that everything about following Jesus as his disciple flows out of a faith relationship with God who makes us new in Christ. And if we've been made new in Christ, then we've been set on this lifelong path of following Jesus, to be like Jesus. And one of the great failures of man-made religion is that it is an attempt to fix the outer person, uh, but it neglects the fact that God looks on the heart. So we've got to be careful about emphasizing the external while at the same time we're neglecting the internal. We've got to be careful that we're not corrupting others or placing obstacles in the way of the word of God so that it is hindered. When Jesus left the meal at the Pharisee's house, things began to intensify. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose Jesus. And as they continued that opposition to him and it was growing, the Bible tells us that they were bombarding him with questions. They were trying to catch him in some type of trap. They were trying to take him off of the path uh, that he was on and trip him up in some way. But at the same time, Jesus was drawing multitudes of people. People were crowding in. In fact, there were so many people crowding in that they were trampling one another because they had heard the teaching of Jesus, they had seen the ministry of Jesus, and they knew that there was something different, that there was love that was flowing out from him, and they wanted to get as close as they possibly could. So we begin reading in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. And the scripture says, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, what do we make of this issue of hypocrisy? Hypocrisy basically means to play act. It means to engage in pretense. I think hypocrisy can come from an intentional effort to deceive yourself and others, focusing only on the outward and neglecting the inward. Or I think it can come simply because we've drifted and we know what we believe, we say what we believe, but yet our lives have drifted. So what we say we believe and who we actually are is inconsistent. And that presents the issue of hypocrisy in our lives. It's claiming to be one thing, but being something else. Now, the word comes from a word that literally means an actor or one who would wear a mask. So to say it another way, hypocrites are pretenders. They're trying to present themselves as one thing, but there's something altogether different. Hypocrisy is concerned with what other people think about you rather than what God thinks about you. The emphasis is on pleasing people rather than on pleasing God. 
And at hand were these Pharisees who went through these elaborate outward rituals, but their souls were sinful and contaminated. So Jesus uses the illustration of the leaven of the Pharisees, a leaven referring to a yeast-like substance that would represent sin in the New Testament, a yeast being that which only takes a small amount in order to make bread rise when you're cooking it. And the man-made teachings of the Pharisees were like the yeast or like the leaven in a loaf of bread. It only takes a small amount to impact negatively something that is far greater. So the sin and the hypocrisy that they were presenting was negatively impacting a whole bunch of people. And Jesus said, you got to beware of this. you got to watch out for the hypocrisy. So I want to ask and answer this question in these few moments that we have together. If you are accountable to God, and you are and I am, then how should this affect your spiritual life and my spiritual life? How should this change and direct and guide how we live? Well, the first truth I want to show you is that if you will uncover your sin before God, he will cover your sin. Uncover your sin before God and he will cover your sin. Let's pick back up in verse 2. The Bible says, For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Oh my goodness. This should bring to us a sense of trepidation that there is nothing hidden from God. And did you know that the art and the effort of being a hypocrite depends on the effort and the ability to keep certain things hidden about your life? But there will come a time for each one of us when it is no longer possible to hide anything and the hypocrite especially is going to be inevitably unmasked. I think what's in view is the judgment day, although it could apply as well to the here and now. There are times in our lives where the chastening or the disciplining hand of God comes upon us, and we've done things and said things, and we're trying to hide things and keep things away from other people and from God. And God uncovers it to bring it us to a place of accountability and to a place of repentance. There's also the principle of sowing and reaping here that's at play, that what you sow, that you also reap. But the bigger picture is pointing us to the idea of judgment. And Jesus makes the point that there are things that people have said and done in secret, in the dark, in hidden rooms, that they never thought was going to be known or revealed, but yet it will be brought to light. And not only will it be brought to light, it will be brought to light in the most public of all ways, to the extreme of the publicity that we could imagine. And he's referring here to that greater day of judgment. The Bible says in Romans 14 and verse 10 and following, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. 
Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So the judgment seat of Christ is for believers. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now let me be absolutely clear so there is no confusion at all about the direction I'm going with uh, in this point. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine salvation. If you have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then all of your sins have been forgiven in Christ. The blood of Jesus covers all of your sin. And if the blood of Jesus did not cover all of your sin, then that would negate the sufficiency of what Christ did at the cross and would make salvation in some way according to what our efforts are or aren't. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account of our lives. This is the place where we'll be accountable to God for what we've done, and we will be rewarded accordingly and given responsibility eternally based on that. So at the judgment seat of Christ, the concern is going to be, have I followed Jesus well? Uh, Have I grown in holiness and in the likeness of Jesus? Have I been a good steward, a good manager of what God has entrusted to me in my life? 1 Corinthians 3 makes it clear that in that day, our works are going to be revealed as either wood, hay, and stubble, which is useless eternally, or gold, silver, or precious stones, which represents something that is lasting. So when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be there by the blood of Jesus, but we will want to stand before the Lord having lived our lives in a way that honors him. Now, the great white throne judgment is also described in Revelation 20. I won't read it right now, but you can go back and read it in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. And that's the final judgment leading up to eternity for unbelievers. The books will be opened containing the record of everyone's deeds and all whose names are written in the book of life will spend eternity with God and all others will be eternally separated from God in hell. So believers will be accountable at the judgment seat of Christ and rewarded and given eternal responsibility. And unbelievers will appear at the great white throne judgment. Now here's the point that I think we want to apply to our lives. If you will uncover your sin before God, he will cover your sin. Now I do not mean that he will turn a blind eye to it or that he will ignore it, or that he'll sweep it under the rug, or that he'll act like it never happened without some penalty being exacted. But what I do mean is that God laid that penalty on his only son. And it was, it was at the cross that Jesus Christ took our iniquities upon himself. It was at the cross that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God. It was at the cross that Jesus himself was judged for our sins. And he was willing to do that on our behalf. 
Psalm 32 and verse 1 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7 and verse 19 says, God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Romans 4 in verse 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Jesus is our hope. Because he stood in our place. Because he was our substitute. Then he is our hope. Listen to what 1 John chapter 2 says, beginning in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and he is our advocate with the Father. God, who is our judge, is full of grace and mercy, so we turn to him. The second truth is that you need to fear God, who has power over all eternity. Fear God, who has power over all eternity. Verse 4, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Jesus addresses his disciples as friends. Isn't it a wonderful thought that we could be described as friends of God? That Jesus would say to us, lean in a little closer here, friend because I have something important to say to you. And Jesus was speaking to their hearts. One commentator said, all things are common to friends according to the ancient ideal. And the commonality in view here apparently includes shared enemies, shared fate at the hand of those who spurn God's purposes for themselves, and shared knowledge. So Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. Now, we've already been introduced to this idea in Luke's gospel. The prophets experienced this, and Jesus was preparing his disciples in the church for what was to come. But in Luke chapter 11 and verse 49, it says, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. So what's being referred to here is not just marginalization or ridicule or maybe some slight difficulty because you've called on the name of Christ. What's in view here is full-out persecution by people who can kill you dead because you've called on the name of Christ. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of that. Instead, you need to be fearful of God. Statistics tell us that somewhere around 260 million Christians live in places where persecution is high around the world. To state it another way, one out of nine professing believers lives in a place where persecution is significant. In the past year alone, it is estimated 
that there were 3,000 people who were martyred, killed for their faith. There were 9,500 churches that were either burned or destroyed in one manner or the other, attacked because they were Christian churches. Some 3,700 people around the world were imprisoned, many of them without any kind of a trial or any kind of evidence against them other than the fact that they were practicing believers. So we pray for the persecuted church. We take that responsibility seriously. And Jesus provides courage here by saying, do not fear those who can kill the body. Opponents can only bring physical death, and yet there's no need to fear them because they cannot affect your eternal destiny. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Romans chapter 8, and it speaks to the many difficulties that we could potentially face in this life. And the conclusion is, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus insists here, on the exchange of one kind of fear for another. You remember in the Old Testament when God called Moses out of the backside of the desert to come and lead his people? And the glory of God appeared at the burning bush, the bush that would not be consumed. And as Moses was there before that burning bush with trembling hands, he removed his sandals and he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That's the type of holy reverence that we need for the eternal God. We need the type of reverence that Isaiah had when he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, Jesus states specifically the reason why we're to fear God even more. And that is because he has power over all eternity. And even more particularly here, it is God alone who has the power to cast a soul into hell. And I think the fear of God is much needed in the church today because there, in a sense, uh, there is a lack of understanding of that. And as a result of that, we don't think a whole lot about accountability. And yet we're all accountable to God. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. When the Scottish reformer, John Knox, was lowered into his grave, it was declared, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. I wonder how our lives would be described. Even as I pray for the persecuted church, I, I often think... What if I were put in that situation as they were, how would I have responded? It's easy to say over here where everything's comfy and relatively easy that we would stand firm and that we would not waver in that moment of persecution. But it's a whole nother deal when you're in the face of death and you're having to decide in that moment who it is that you're going to fear. Now, obviously, Jesus does not guarantee us protection from death in this life. But instead, he tells us that God alone controls the eternal destiny of people. It's pretty amazing to me to watch people who are Christians who live like the world in terms of how they see life and death. They do everything they possibly can, thinking that somehow they're going to stave off that final death. They're going to stave off the end, and they're going to be different from everybody else. But the reality is, if Jesus tarries his coming... We'll all pass that way. We'll all die. The question is not, 
if, the question is when and how. So we best be prepared. And we best look to the one who has eternity in his hands. Because he's the only one who can save our souls. So instead of fearing people, fear God. Live in awe of divine glory and splendor. And then the third truth is that you need to know that God cares about every detail of your life. God cares about every detail of your life. Look again at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The God whom we are to fear is the God who can be trusted completely. Jesus uses two illustrations here that argue from the lesser to the greater. He's using something small and saying, if God cares about this and if God knows about this, then certainly God cares about you and God knows about you and God has your best interest in mind. The first illustration that he uses is that of the sparrows. Sparrows were commonly bought and sold in commerce and Jesus refers to their value. A Roman copper coin was worth only about a sixteenth of a denarius. So the comparison would be roughly two for a penny. And yet, not a one of them is forgotten by God. And he's saying, you are more valuable to God than many sparrows. Now, folks, there's a lot of confusion about identity in our world and particularly in our society. And there is one truth in the Bible that particularly shapes our understanding of identity and who we are. And that is the idea and the fact that we have been created in the image of God. So it is the Imago Dei that defines our identity. It's who we are because we've been created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And we are valuable to God. You might remember the comic strip, Charlie Brown, or if you're younger, you might have seen it in a cartoon. And Charlie Brown liked the underdog because he usually felt like one. And in one scene, he's building a birdhouse, and Lucy comes by, and Charlie says, I'm building it for the sparrows. And Lucy says, for sparrows? Nobody builds birdhouses for sparrows. And Charlie said, I do, because I always stick up for the underbird. I want you to know God always sticks up for the underbird. In fact, the things that sometimes we think have great value have very little value to God. But the things that the world says are not all that important are eternally valuable to God. And God knows every detail of your life. He is the omniscient God. There is nothing that escapes his knowledge and his understanding. There's nothing that has ever surprised God because God knows everything from the beginning to the end. So the second illustration that he uses here is that of the hairs of your head being numbered. Now it depends on what the color of your hair is as to how many hairs that you actually have on your head. Uh, you can go check it out for yourself, Sunday afternoon reading. And uh, it also depends on how follicularly challenged you are to some degree. Uh, but at any rate, uh, all of us have somewhere between 90 and 145,000 hairs on our head. 
And God knows every single one. Every single one. And some people would say, oh, that's just, that's just hyperbole. That's, that's just a, an illustration to the extreme. God doesn't really know or care about the specific number of the hairs on your head. And I would say to you, that is absolutely not true. Because once again, if he knows all things, and if he cares intimately about those of us that he has created in his image, then certainly he knows every detail of life. Now, how do we apply this to everyday living? Well, I think we apply it practically to our needs. God knows and cares about what you need. Matthew 6 and verse 26 says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So once again, Jesus is making the argument from the lesser to the greater. He's using this illustration to make his point. And I believe not only does God care about what you need, but God cares about every step you take. Psalm 37 and verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now, there's a lot of contrast in both the Proverbs and the Psalms uh, about uh, the wicked and the righteous, the good and the evil, the light and the dark. And the Scripture makes it clear that there are many that walk in a path of wickedness, they walk in a path of darkness, they walk on their own path, and all of that is in rebellion to God. But it is also abundantly clear that those who love God and truly want to honor Him are going to follow His Word, and they're going to walk in the steps that God wants them to take. And what God does is when we pray and we read His Word and we desire to obey Him, is that God's desires become our desires. And Our lives are consistent with who he wants us to be. And then I say to you that God cares about the burdens that you bear. Psalm 55 and verse 22 says, Cast your burdens on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. I would guess that there are as many burdens in this room today as there are people. Some of you might be carrying a burden about your own personal health. Something you're dealing with, maybe only those people that are closest to you know about it. Some of you might be dealing with the burden of of a job concern or a financial need, and you don't know exactly what you're going to do. Some of you might be dealing with the burden of a child who is wayward, maybe a prodigal who has not come home, or a grandchild who is not walking on the path, and you're concerned for their soul, you're concerned for their life. I'm here to tell you God cares about every single one of those burdens that you're bearing. And you don't have to live a life of worry and turmoil and fear of man. If you fear God and you understand that he knows about every detail of your life and you know that he reigns over all of life and eternity, then you can find your peace in him and you can build a life that is confident because you know that God is with you along the way. So as I come toward the close of this message, I want to make this statement. You are valuable to God. Trust in Him. You are valuable to God. Trust in Him. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. I want to extend an invitation of response to you wherever you are um, today. And as the Guys are coming back up to sing a closing song. 
I want us to reflect on this word that we have just read and these truths that we have just studied. And I think there's a clear call here to Christians to be transparent before God, knowing that you are accountable to Him. Resting in the fact that if you will uncover your sin to God, God will cover your sin. God will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and He will set you on a path that you need to be on. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your mind that you know should not be in your life. It could just be a spirit of independence, a spirit of rebellion. It could be a spirit of just wanting to do what you want to do rather than what God wants you to do. Now's your opportunity to repent of that and say, God, I'm trusting in you and I yield my whole life to you, every area. There's not one corner of my life that I'm trying to keep concealed. It's all in your hands. There could be some people that are dealing with life-besetting sins. You've been trapped up in something that has kept you hindered along the way and has quenched and grieved the Holy Spirit. God can set you free from whatever that is, but you've got to be transparent before Him and you've got to come in repentance and say, God, help me. That's for believers. But maybe there are some unbelievers listening and if you were honest and you had to say whether or not you truly have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, you'd have to answer no to that. The good news is God can change your life today if you'll turn to him. You see, God's a holy God and we're sinful people. And there's no way that we can get back to God on our own. But God sent his one and only son to live and to die and to now live again. That we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. You say, well, pastor, how do I take that step? I'm not a Christian, but I want to be. I want to be today. You can confess that to God. And just pray to God and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm guilty before you. And you're a holy God. And I'm on my way to hell. But I believe that you sent Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for my sins, who was buried and who was raised. And I turn from my sins and I place my faith and trust in him. I want to follow Jesus. And God will hear that prayer and he'll welcome you into his family and he'll call you his friend. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word and at times, the shocking teachings of Jesus, which kind of uh, just rock our world where we are and help us to see things as we really should. We thank you that you're the God of grace and mercy and that our eternal hope is in you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that uh, their lives would be transparent before you, that you would protect us, that we would beware of the sin of hypocrisy. And that we would be a people that are described as what you see is what you get. Who are real and genuine before the throne of God. And I pray, Father, that you would use this message, the message of the gospel, to draw people who don't know you to yourself. Because you're the God of grace and mercy. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.